Welcome. The subject of this talk is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, a very important subject between Muslims and Christians, particularly because it is the core of our belief about God and because on the Muslim side they think this is the weakest point of Christian belief and it's the one they can attack more easily than any other. <clears throat> one of the reasons for that is that Muslims think that we worship three gods and they just cannot possibly see how three distinct personalities can be regarded as one supreme being. <clears throat> it's either three or it's one, just cannot be three and one or one in three. The other thing about Muslims is that they believe <clears throat> that this is a sin that in God's sight is regarded as the worst of all sins, and that is to associate partners to God, and in particular the Christian belief that Jesus is the Son of God and one of a threefold uh, divine personality is precisely the sort of thing that the Quran rejects. In Surah 4 and verse 48, it says, Truly Allah will not forgive <coughs> any associating with him, but will forgive anything else to whomever he pleases. For whoever associates, that is shirk, with Allah verily commits a great sin. All Muslims from childhood know this surah, Surah 112 in the Quran. Kul huallahu ahad. Say he is Allah the one. Allahu samad, Allah the eternal. Yam yalid, walam yulad, walam yakulahu kufuan ahad. He does not beget, nor is he begotten, and like unto him there is not one. That's the whole surah, Surah 112. <laughs> God doesn't beget, he's not begotten, he's exclusive, he's a Unitarian God, and that's the beginning and the end of it. <clears throat> this surah is so highly regarded in the Muslim world that in the hadith it is said to be one-third. If you recite this, you've recited one-third of the whole Quran, and it's known as the chapter of purity, Suratul Ikhlas. And so Muslims ask, how can three persons exist in one God? And I've heard Muslims say, Things like this to me, when Jesus died, if Jesus is God and is divine and the Trinity is one, then if Jesus died on the cross, then all three gods must have died at the same time. Uh, did God die? If not, what happened? How can any part of God die and the other part survive? And you get these sort of questions that just show the misunderstanding on the Muslim side rather than anything wrong with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Basically, the Bible teaches that God is triune, that in his essence and his being, he's a single being. But he's a threefold personality, and the personalities are distinct from each other. They don't exist in distinction from each other, but they live as threefold being. They are distinct in their very person, as I am. I have a personality, and other human beings have the same. Well, same with God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They can be separated from each other as Jesus was on the cross when he and the Father were completely separate so much so that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They can be distinct in their work and in what they're doing as the Holy Spirit is uh, when he is the only one of the Trinity to be described in terms like these that uh, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh uh, or else, as Jesus said in John 3, that the, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The work, the very nature, the very character of the three persons is very distinct. 
In fact, my impression is that the uh, first and second persons of the Trinity have a far closer affinity in personality than the third has to either of them. I've often asked the question, when Jesus died and when the Father and the Son were totally separated from each other in those hours, when the Son took the wrath of the Father on himself and the Father poured the wrath out on him, where was the Holy Spirit in that moment? And I've yet to meet a Christian who can give me an answer and I can't give you one because the Bible doesn't say it. <clears throat> the only thing I do know is that he wasn't part of that equation. So the Trinity is a description, a definition of who God is in a complex, perhaps, nature that we can't understand. We freely accept that as Christians. We don't claim for one minute to be able to answer every question that anyone may ask us about who God is. What is important for us is what the New Testament reveals about the triune God, the nature of God, nature of his triune being. To just introduce the subject, <coughs> where did we get the belief in the Trinity from? The answer is very simple. One person, Jesus. Jesus was the one who came into the world, calling God his Father, calling himself the Son of God, and talking about the Holy Spirit. And it was from that, from his teaching alone, not from Paul or anyone else, that we derived this doctrine. Well, let's begin. God the Father. I love this title. You don't find it in any other religion. All the other religions of the world, even especially the monotheistic ones, Judaism, Islam, number of attributes of God, number of definitions of Him, but it's Christianity alone that calls Him the Father. Jesus spoke of my Father, Matthew 18, 11, or your Father, Luke 12, 32, the Father, John 14, 12, or just Father, John eleven forty one. The important thing about this is that Jesus was introducing something new about God that had never been known before, that the God of heaven is prepared to relate to other people at a personal level. That's the first thing that strikes me. When I read the Old Testament and I see Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now Jesus comes and begins to say to us, uh, he is not just a unitarian being, he is a threefold being, and as I'm going to open up, a deeper knowledge of who God is, first thing I'll tell you is that the first person is the Father. Tells me he's a relational God. Not just a sovereign ruler, he wants a definite relationship beyond his own individual personality as Father, not only to his own Son, but to all who believe. Secondly, the Son, Jesus, the Son of God. It is with this person that the Father enjoys his primary relationship. The Father loves the Son, shows him all that he is doing. These are passages out of John's Gospel that bring this out. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 4, 23. Um, I came from the Father and I came into the world again. I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. John 16, 28. And then again, Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son but the Father. And no one knows the Father but the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So that you can see that there is a very close divine relationship between the two. And it is that which defines the primary relationship that the Father enters into. Now we turn to the third person, God, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, particularly Jesus' teaching, another personality becomes very prominent. Jesus called him simply the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Mentioned in the Old Testament in 
Genesis 1-2 and in other passages, Psalm 89, um, but never defined in simple words as the Holy Spirit. He enjoys an obviously intimate relationship from Jesus' teaching with both the Father and the Son at the same level. <clears throat> when you read the uh, message of Jesus to his disciples in John 14 to 16, the last night he was with them, <clears throat> when he incidentally gave the most <clears throat> intimate teaching that he'd ever given them as to who God is and as to how he wishes to relate to man, he spoke much of the Holy Spirit in this context. That he proceeds from the Father, he bears witness to the Son, John 15, 26. The Father would send him in the Son's name. He would bring to the disciples' remembrance all that the Son had taught them, John 14, verse 26. And so you see that from Jesus' own teaching, our knowledge of God is a deeper one than had ever been known before, and that through Jesus we have an access now to the Father by which we can come to know him more directly, more intimately than ever before. There are some direct statements in the New Testament of the three persons in a singular context. Muslims have often said, but you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. That's quite true. In fact, the word Trinity was only a definition of the nature of God that the church applied to him about three centuries later. But that was from a discovery of who he is. It wasn't from an invention of it. But if Muslims say to you, well, where is your proof that God is actually triune? Never mind what uh, you can tell us about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit individually. Well, I'll give you some verses that bring it out. Triune verses. Matthew 28, 19. Baptize your disciples, the ones that you make in my name, Jesus said. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Singular word, name. It doesn't say what that name is, and it doesn't mean a real definitive name. The word name in the New Testament, that time in common language, could often mean an identification. <clears throat> you find that a lot of people had names in those days, even as they do today, that indicate something about the person. Uh, Moses got his name because he was Moshe, drawn out of the water. That was Pharaoh's daughter who gave him that name. And in the same way, Jesus, when he says, baptize him in the name, singular of the Father, means into the character, the essence, the very nature of who he is. Single essence, but a threefold personality. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There again, three persons mentioned together. Grace of Jesus, love of God, fellowship of Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 2.18, in Him, that's the Holy Spirit, we both have access, sorry, that is Jesus, in Him, the Son of God, we both have access in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. And again, you see the unity and the divine realm in which these three personalities exist. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 19, common divine nature. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, a common divine blessing. Ephesians 2, 18, a common divine accessibility. All triune statements indicating the Trinity as the very character of who God is. And if a Muslim says to you, but why is there no mention of the Trinity at all then in the Old Testament? The first answer to that question is that it was only when Jesus came into the world to redeem us and to pay the supreme price 
to open the door for us to be accepted by God and to introduce the new covenant that it was possible for us to know the intimate nature of who God is. That's why Trinity is so common in the New Testament and uh, is not part of Old Testament theology. But there are references in the Old Testament to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in clear, plain language. And interestingly, almost all of them are when the new covenant is being anticipated. In other words, that God himself, whenever he speaks through his word of the day when the new covenant will come, gives little hints as to a greater depth to his inner being than had been known before. Just as in passing, the Holy Spirit is the first personality of the triune being mentioned in the Old Testament in its very second verse. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. In Psalm 51 verse 11, David says, Create in me a new heart, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's not a title, the Holy Spirit. It's just the definition. Your Holy Spirit. Do not take him from me. Psalm 89 verse 26, the Lord says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, and I will make him the firstborn, the ruler of the sons of earth. In Ezekiel 34 to verse 37, God said, I will... Uh, give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. <clears throat> and in 1 Chronicles 17, 11, verse 13, uh, through Nathan, God says to David, when the, your days are fulfilled, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. It's a clear language, Trinitarian language in the Old Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And interestingly, in almost all these quotes, in the new covenant context, foreseeing the day when Jesus would come and bring it in. The next thing I want to speak to you about on the subject of the Trinity is what I would call, and hinted at it already, the incomprehensible nature of God. Muslims are confused. They say, how can you believe in this doctrine? And very often when Christians try to explain it, they get confused. I never have a problem with that. The Muslim says to me, if you can't define this for us clearly, how can you ask us to believe it? My answer is, if I could define everything about God as clearly as you might want, I might have to be God himself. I doubt if even the angels of heaven could define everything that one might want to know about who God is. But I love the Muslim expression that you hear all the time in mosques and everywhere else, Allahu Akbar, because the word in translation correctly means Allah, not Allah is great or God is most great, but it is actually Allah the greater, greater than everything else that, could, that you could possibly know or comprehend or understand. And that's what we believe. The greatness of God cannot be fully comprehended. It's not possible for this little finite human mind in 75 years perhaps of living to be able to work out the depth of God's being. We can only respond to the revelation of it as far as it is given to us. That's what the Christian says. We respond to God the Father by knowing him now as Father and loving him. We respond to God the Son by believing in him because he is our Savior. We respond through the Spirit of God who lives within us. That's all we need to know is the ability to get into a very intimate relationship with God. In Job 11 verse 7 and 8, one of his companions says to him, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And that's the point. 
the knowledge of God in all his fullness is not within human reach. I've heard it <coughs> said in the Muslim world that one of the wonderful things about the Muslim doctrine of God of Allah is that you can put it on a postage stamp. And the Saudi Arabian government has done so. They've issued <coughs> stamps and they have a flag which has the words on it, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, the testimony, the kalima of Islam. There's one God but Allah, no other. And I've always said, well, if you can define the whole character of God and his being <coughs> just on a postage stamp, well, one wonders where that comprehension of God was originated from, where it came from in the first place. Uh, must be a very finite human mind that can go no further of God than to say, Allah is one and I can tell you nothing more about him. It's not a question of simplicity. There's no virtue in saying, as Muslims do, our doctrine of God is so simple it's easy to believe. That's, that means nothing, nothing to me at all. I say to myself, I want to know who God really is in all his fullness. And if I can't comprehend all that because he won't reveal the depth of it to me, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I would expect to find that he is a very complex God. <clears throat> we live in a very complex universe that we are only today beginning to understand with any kind of real uh, certainty about its extent and its nature. How much more the God who is behind it all, who hides so much of his being from us. Our belief is not contrary to reason, not at all. It is just beyond it. Human reason can't define the character of God, whether triune or, or any other doctrine. You could never work it out fully. It's a matter of faith to believe in a God you can't see <clears throat> and to respond to him in terms of what your scripture tells you. The Apostle Paul once turned to one of the Roman leaders of his day in his trial and in Acts 26 verse 8, it was Festus, he says to him, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now even today there are scientists and others and atheists and evolutionists who say this is impossible, scientifically impossible, naturally impossible that a human being once dead could come back to life. But Paul thinks it's what is incredible is that anybody doesn't believe that. He says this, this should be a given that God could do this. He made no attempt to explain the resurrection. If he'd been here today, he wouldn't have sat down with these scientists and tried to give them a, a naturalistic or a scientific explanation of how somebody could rise from the dead three days after he was crucified. On this point, Muslims should support us because they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the Quran speaks about it and every Muslim believes that one day we'll all be raised back to life. So they shouldn't have a difficulty here in being able to accept that there are things that you take on faith that you can't otherwise explain. Nobody can explain how dead people come back to life other than just to say, kun kun, be and it comes to be. That's how the Quran puts it. God just simply does it the way he wants to and it happens. We don't know how it happens, but we believe it by faith. And so the issue here is one of faith as well. The New Testament is far more concerned with our relationship to God than it is with how much we might know about him. That, that's the core thing for the Christian. That's the thing we must always get across to Muslims in witness. It is not so much what we might know about God. That's one issue. For the Christian, knowing God is the key thing. That's the, that's the important thing. That's Galatians 4 verse 9. Uh, now that you have come to know God, Paul says, or rather to be known of God. 
And that means that it was God who took the initiative in Christ to make it possible for us to know him. The important thing is for human beings on earth is not to be able to plot heaven on a map. Nobody's ever been able to do that. No matter what we know about the universe, we're not likely to find out where heaven is. The important thing is to be sure you're going there. That's as far as it goes. And that the Bible opens to us and shows exactly how to get there. And so it is with the character of God as well. It's not important to us to be able to comprehend it or define it in any exhaustive way. What is important is to know God himself, to be right with him, to be approved by him, to be loved by him, to know that we are forgiven by him, rather than being able to understand or comprehend his nature fully. Uh, if I can put it to you in a nutshell, God wants to be loved and obeyed. He does not want to be studied or analyzed. He's a personal God, and as Jesus showed us, he wants a personal relationship, and he wants us to work on that. What is also important here is that if this doctrine was in any way defective, or if the very complex nature of it sort of worked against its credibility, you would say, why has a Christian church never divided on this issue? Funny, it's, uh, it's divided on so many other issues and is so to this day. Your Roman Catholics, your Eastern Orthodox Church, your Protestant Church, oh, we've, we've divided on so many things in history. We've discussed them, we've debated them, and we've just agreed to differ. And at times we keep apart from each other for that reason. But the one thing we have never divided on is the Trinity. Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, and every Protestant church, Presbyterian or you can name them, Baptist, and you can name the movements, charismatic, conservative evangelical, mainline traditional, whatever you like, the doctrine of the Trinity has never been an issue. It's because Christians know that the important thing is that he is a knowable God. That's what he's revealed himself to us to be, not a comprehensible God. Again, you'll find that Muslims sometimes say, I've heard this before. You know, for centuries, God was just one God until the church turned him into a threefold being at some particular time, usually the time of the Council of Nicaea. He always was just God, but you turned him into a trinity. You made him different. No, no, no. We discovered his true nature. We had a deeper revelation of it, and we've simply responded to it. Uh, three centuries ago, Galileo lived. Before him, Copernicus and others like Kepler, who began to discover things about the universe that human beings had not considered possible before. It had always generally been believed in Europe and uh, North Africa and the Middle East in those days, right back to the time of Ptolemy and others, even to Aristotle, that the earth was at the center of the universe, was a static earth, and that the whole universe was rotating around it. And that wasn't hard to understand because if you go and look out at the sky at night, that's what it looks like. This earth doesn't feel like it's moving and it looks as though everything's going around it. And that was held as a cardinal doctrine of Christian faith for centuries. But when Galileo, Copernicus and others started teaching that in fact the earth is just another planet going around the sun, and that in that time, some of them suggested that the sun was at the center of the universe, which was just one little step away from the um, error that uh, we'd had. We now know the sun is no more at the center of it than we are. But the church reacted. Uh, it put Galileo under house arrest. 
Copernicus was careful not to disclose his theory till just before his death when he felt safe to do so. Um, Bruno was another who was actually burnt at the stake for holding views like this. These people, however, had simply begun to discover the truth about our universe. It, you can't say that the, at one time the Earth was the center of the universe, but now all of a sudden Copernicus and Galileo and others turned the universe around. I mean, that would be a ridiculous thing to make. No, they only discovered the deeper truths about it, things that are not immediately comprehensible. It certainly doesn't feel like this Earth is rotating on its axis. I don't feel right now that I'm spinning around on the axis of this planet at a thousand miles an hour, but that's actually roughly the speed we're going. This Earth is going around the sun at about 50,000 miles an hour. It's spinning around in the Milky Way at about 550,000 miles an hour. And in the universe as a whole, it's actually got a momentum of something like, I can't even think what it is, it's well over a million miles an hour that we're moving. You feel that? You can't. Can't comprehend it. But today, it's not argued with, we understand. It's scientific truth. And it's the same about God. Can't understand him completely, but we've had the truth about him revealed to us in its depth, and we accept that on the basis of the revelation given to us. Another issue here is the essential unity of God, the basis of the Trinity and what we believe. In the Old Testament, this is a common statement. For example, the Lord God in heaven above and on earth beneath, he is one, there is no other. Now you find that in Isaiah, especially around Isaiah 44 and other uh, passages. And in the New Testament, you find the same statements. In Mark 12, 29, the Lord our God is one Lord and that God is one. And that's Paul in Romans 3.30 and Galatians 3.20. So the unity of God is not an issue with Christians. In fact, the Trinity as a doctrine does not exist outside of the unity of God. Take, for example, these statements. 1 John 1 verse 5. God is light. Now, when you have a look at this broken down in a triune context, you'll find that the Father of lights that's how he's described, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's James 1.17. Jesus himself declared, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's John 8.12. And then Hebrews also says that he will never change, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 verse 8. Through the Holy Spirit, God shines in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's, there's obviously a complete unchanging unity between the three and each one manifests the light of God in all its fullness. But the simple definition of the unity of God is God is light. Then again, John 3:33, God is true. Uh, but you find in John 14 verse 6 that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 15 verse 26. The point is that there's no falsehood in any of them. They share the same absolutely truthful, honest nature that they have with each other. 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. Right at the depth of his, of his being, there is an absolute unified essence, which is the love that is at the core of who he is. But <clears throat> New Testament often talks about the love of the Father, 
John 16 verse 27, the Father has loved you, so on. Goes on to say that the love of God was manifested at its supreme extent when he sent his son to redeem our sins. John uh, Romans uh, 5 verse 8, 1 John 4 verse 10. And then, of course, you know Jesus' words from John as well. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then comes to the Holy Spirit, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Romans 5 verse 5. All three are identical and their character is the same. It's a single essence, single unity. God is light, God is true, God is love, and so you can go on. You see, when you understand this, Trinity doesn't make sense, but it makes it uh, believable. It makes it possible for you to believe in the true God, to know God is light, to, to follow that light, to, to, to share that love, to, to believe in that truth. It is to know God for who he really is. Not to do what Muslims have done over the centuries, and that is to try and argue the Trinity away on rational grounds. Uh, one of the early Muslims, Abu Isa al-Warak, wrote a book called Arad Allah al-Taslith, and that is the refutation of the Trinity. And what he said, and it's a, it's a fairly lengthy book and it's a fairly well-reasoned argument, but it goes basically like this, that if God's being is the same, God has an essence, a substance or a being that is the same as the three hypostases. The persons call them what you want to be, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He said, then what Christians are doing, what is making something differentiated, that's three, that isn't this differentiated. It's a single substance. He says, if they are different, then the substance must be a fourth. This is how his argument goes. If you have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, three hypostases, but there is a single essence, a single nature, then that must be a fourth character, fourth factor. And you're getting further and further away from the unity of God as you might want to, to, to get. Now that I find extremely difficult to follow because that's not the New Testament pattern in revealing the triune God to us at all. It doesn't subject us to analysis. It doesn't break it down into components. Uh, what it does is to define the three persons of the Trinity in relational terms. The Father who loves you and is for you. The Son who was with us and who died for us. The Holy Spirit who is in us and who brings us into fellowship with God. That's how the New Testament projects it. It's not a question of trying to cut this up with a pair of scissors without actually disturbing the product as a whole. You'll end up like Abu Issa, you just can't do that. <laughs> in fact, even illustrations that I hear disturb me at times. For example, Christians love this. They love talking about uh, the egg. Has, um, it has a yolk and it has a, a white and it has uh, you know, shells. So therefore, it's three in one and that's how God is. Or else, like the other illustration I hear of water, that water is one substance, but it has, can come in three different forms. In other words, it can be steam, or it can be liquid, or it can be solid, it can be ice. Um, I wouldn't use illustrations like that. They don't even begin to, to tell you anything, and certainly don't tell Muslims anything about the Trinity, and it's certainly not the way the New Testament goes about revealing the Trinity to us. <coughs> I once heard on British television, a woman on a religious program says, yes, you know, the Christians say that God is triune. It's like an egg. Uh, it has a yolk and it has, a, it has the, the white and it has the, the shell. She said, yes, I've got to be honest. The Christian God reminds me of an egg. 
and left it at that just to sort of make its own impact. And uh, I've heard Muslims say with that other illustration about water, a Muslim said, so what you are saying is that it all depends on what God's temperature is in the day. If God is feeling very cold in himself, then he is the first person of the Trinity, is ice cold. If he's feeling normal, then he's water, he's liquid, he's the sun. But if he's really hot, then he is steam, he's the Holy Spirit. And you see how you can subject these kind of illustrations to absolute ridicule because they don't begin to reveal what three in one really means. And we don't even understand, can never understand this side of eternity. Maybe won't even understand it on the other, what that oneness and how the threefoldness is expressed in it for what it really is. What God wants us to do is to relate to him for who he is, to accept the revelation of his being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to close by just simply looking at these three in that relational character. From God's side, what is coming across to us in the revelation of his triune being. Firstly, God for us, God the Father. According to the Hadith records of Islam, Allah has 99 beautiful names, and these are his attributes. Whoever recites them can expect to enter paradise. That's in the Sahih of Muslim, volume 4, page 1410. The first 13 names of Allah appear in Surah uh, 59, verses 22 to 24, and they begin as follows. Ar-Rahman, the compassionate, Ar-Rahim, the merciful, Amalek, the sovereign, Al-Qudus, the holy, and so on it goes. Now, according to Sufi Muslims, Allah has a hundredth name, not just 99, there is another one. The first, uh, or the last, take it as you choose, but there is yet another name, and that no one knows it. It's a Muslim tradition popular folklore that a camel walks along with his head held high because he knows the hundredth name and no one else does. Well, that's just fantasy. But the Sufi masters of old used to say, no, that when our Sufi masters gained that ultimate access into unity with God in one single essence, they then knew what the hundredth name of God was, but they were not allowed to tell it. They were not allowed to come back and disclose it to anyone. Well, let me quote you a verse from the Quran at this point. Surah 19, verse 93. There's no one in the heavens and the earth who can come to the compassionate except as a servant. And that is the problem here, because if you come as a servant, you can't know this hundredth name of God. All you can know is the attributes of God, compassionate, merciful, and hope that in his compassion and mercy, you know, you might get some of that coming your way. This hundredth name of God, when Muslims say to me, that's the one that you don't know. Nobody knows that. I always say to them, no, no, no. I said, uh, I'm not going to argue whether God has 99 names or not. I said, or 100. I said, but if he had 100 and one of them isn't there, it's not the 100th that you guys are missing. It's actually the first. It's the most important name of God. And it's the one that appears more commonly in the New Testament than any other and doesn't appear in the Quran once. And that is God the Father, by which we know that God is for us that I'm not a servant anymore, as that verse says in the Quran, but that I am a child. His name is my name. That's why in the New Testament there is no definitive name for God. The name in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and that was the name by which the Jews knew God. And the name in the Quran is Allah, and that's the way Muslims know him. The surprising thing is that 
neither one of those names has got anything personal about it, even though God made himself the direct master of the nation of Israel and drew near to them. Yahweh simply comes from uh, the passage in Exodus where God said to Moses, I am who I am. And so Yahweh means simply that he is, he exists. Doesn't tell you much. And Allah in Islam as a name, well, if whatever its origin was, it can only mean the Almighty or even perhaps from the very sort of breakdown of it into Allah, the God, it's very impersonal. But once you know God as Father and you become his child, then it becomes a personal relationship and his name becomes your name. Um, my name is Gilchrist, that's my surname and that's the name by which everybody knows me. But my family call me by other names. Hi Dad, hi Mo um, uh, my wife calls me by my first name, John. No one of them ever calls me Gilchrist for a simple reason. They bear the same name. From the day we were married, my wife became Mrs. Gilchrist. My sons also take the name Gilchrist. Their name, my name, are the same. And that's why in the New Testament you find no distinct name for God. Whatever it is, we share it. For we know He is our Father. We cry out to God, Abba, Father. Twice in the New Testament that expression is used. Don't name him. We just simply identify him as our direct father. There's a big difference between the children of God and the servants of God. And you can see that on earth in any home. If you have a servant, you have children, these are some of the differences. A servant stays outside the home. In separate quarters, distinct from the family, the children stay inside. The home is theirs. The servant has to earn his right and his wage and his food. The children are fed automatically. They have a right to it, an absolute right to be there. They don't have to work for it. The children know they'll never be dismissed. The servant fears dismissal. The children know they are loved. The servant doesn't care whether he's loved or not. The servant doesn't love in return. He only serves. But the children love in return because they see the love of the parents for them. The whole reason is that there's an identification between father and son and between father and daughter, which you would never have between master and servant. We have certain expressions, little cliches that we use, proverbs that bring this out. For example, you know the expression, one day, my son, this will all be yours. Well, that's exactly what God is saying to us. To Jesus, he says in absolute terms, all this is yours. All authority on heaven and earth is delivered to you. But to us, he could just simply show us his kingdom in glory and say, one day, my son, it's going to be yours. We will not have to pay a mortgage or pay any kind of rental in the apartments or whatever it is we're going to occupy in heaven. will be in our own homes. Heaven itself will be our home. And the Father of heaven will be quite happy that we can live there simply as a right forever and ever. And the other one proverb that we know so well is simply like father, like son. And that's what we are. God sees himself in us. 1 John 3 verse 1 it says, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. And Luke 12 32 says, Fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's because, if I can use an, an expression, he sees his spiritual DNA in us. He recognizes his genetics, his eternal spiritual genetics in us. 
because the Spirit of God lives within us. Um, Jesus said to Simon Peter one day, Matthew 17, 25 following, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or their tribute? From their sons or from others? And Peter said, well, from others. So Jesus said, of course, then the sons are free. And that's what we have. We are the sons and the daughters of God. We, he sees his image in us. I have two sons. And I will unashamedly tell you that I love those two guys more than I love anybody else's sons on earth. And that's because I see my genetics in them. I see my image imprinted on them. Therefore, I love them, and they love me in return. And that's a point being made here. Spiritually, by the very Spirit of God living in us, we are joined and united to God. And that's why he sees himself and his image on us. Just to close on this point of God as Father, many years ago, a Muslim said to me, you know, he said, we pray the Fatiha, it's a short prayer, and you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's about the same length. He said, but we have such a more glorious view of God than you have. He said, you know, when you read the Fatiha, it reads like this. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Oh, praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahimi. Oh, the compassionate, the merciful. Maliki Yawmidin, the master of the day of judgment. And he says, what do you say? Just two simple little words, our father. So is that all you can say? He says, look how we glorify God in such majestic terms. And he said, but what you do, he says, by calling God your father. He says, you make him little less than yourself, just a little bit above you. He said, I mean, you take a human father or a human child. There's not much difference between them, just a bit of age. That's all. Maybe a bit of experience. He says, and that's what you do. You make out that your God is a little bit more than yourself. And he thought that was the end of the, the, end of the equation. I said to him in reply, I said, Half of what you've said is actually true. This is the other half I said is entirely false. I said, what is true is that you are saying that there's very little distance between us and God when we define him as our father. I said, I absolutely agree. I said, couldn't agree with you more. Not much of a gap between us and him. I said, where you are wrong, I said, is in saying that we've pulled him down to our level and made him little more than ourselves. I said, that's not true at all. I said, we didn't make him our father. He chose to be our father. It was his choice to enter into a close relationship with us so that the same relationship he shares with Jesus, he now shares with us. I said, what he has done is to raise us up to his level. And that's where we are, children of God. We are seated with him in heavenly places. As David says in one of his Psalms, um, when I look at the heavens and all the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him little less than God. I said, that's the difference with us. We've been raised to his level. We haven't pulled him down to ours. Secondly, God the Son. Well, this is God with us. Joining us, dying for us. That is who the Son of God is. In this, John says in 1 John 4 verse 10 is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation of our sins. And then again, Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the interesting thing is in Islam that God is called the loving one, Al-Wadud, Surah 85, 14. But that saying doesn't seem to tell you much because it only appears twice in the Quran. And it doesn't seem to mean anything more than that God approves 
when it says God does not love the prodigal or God loves this or God doesn't love that, basically what the Quran means, God approves of this and God doesn't approve of that. Certainly in the Quran, he has no sacrificial love for mankind. I have often asked Muslims, I've said, what exactly has God done for you as a person? Some outstanding act of grace and kindness that you can say he loves me from the depth of his being. I've never had an answer to that question that satisfies me. I have things like this. Well, you know, sometimes he's um, helped me with my health when I was ill and I prayed and he's given me gifts. And, uh, you know, when I was in financial difficulty, I was delivered and he's given me Islam as my religion and so on. I said, yes, but that's all very well. But, but has he ever done anything at some cost to himself? Has he ever stretched himself for you? Has he ever really put himself on the line for you? Well, to a Muslim, that's unthinkable that God should just do that. I said, no, I said, my image of God in Islam is that he sits on his throne, folds his arms, watches you and says, let's see what happens next. Up to you to win my favor. But the God of the Bible opens his arms and he says, no, I'm prepared to go all the way, not just stretch myself. I'll strain myself out for you to redeem you. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's why we look at him and we see in him the perfection of God's love for us. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit, God in us. You may have heard me say earlier that we cry out as children, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, Paul says that God sent his son into the world that we might attain adoption as sons. But now that you are sons, he says, God sends the spirit of his son right into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's what we are. We're not just people who are taught or told that we are children of God. We know it. We experience it. Romans 8, 15 to 16. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And in eternity, as angels reflect the glory of God, we will generate it. The difference there is the same difference between the light of the sun and the light of the moon. The moon reflects the sun's light. It can do no more. It can look pretty bright and impressive at full moon, but it can do no more. And the angels of heaven, for all their luster and their glory, they simply reflect the light of God back to him. But when we are transformed into his likeness, as Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 43, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father because the very divine presence dwells in us and we will generate that light back to him. And we will not look like the moon, but the sun. I can think of only one way of defining the Christian's relationship to God through the Holy Spirit in this context, and it goes like this. I want you to picture a child who's an orphan in an orphanage. He has no father, no mother, no parents, no future, no home. And then one day a couple goes to the local <clears throat> a district council or whatever, they see the, the appointed official and they say, we want to adapt, adopt that child. We'd like to have that child as our own. What do we have to do to go through the process of adoption? They say, well, you must fill in the papers, make the application, which they do. And one day the council sends them a letter or phones them up and say, your, your application has been approved and that child is now adopted. He is yours. At that moment, the child does not know that he is a child of new parents. <clears throat> but 
after a while, the parents go to the orphanage and they take the child and they take it home. When they come to the home, they say, this is going to be your home. We are now going to be your parents. They take him into a room. They say, there's all your toys, your teddy and so on. They're ready here. This whole room is yours. You no longer stay in a dormitory. This house is yours. You're free to come and go as you choose. Don't worry, we're going to love you with all our hearts. And at that moment, the father takes the little boy up in his arms and embraces him and says, you're ours. In that moment, that orphan knows that he is no longer an orphan. He is a child. And that's the experience a Christian has when the Holy Spirit comes into his heart. He becomes a child of God and he experiences it. He's well aware of it. This is where, as a Christian, you see how to communicate the Trinity to others. Not to try and explain it as a doctrinal uh, subject. You're going to get yourself into trouble, I can assure you. It just is not explicable in human language in all its fullness. But in the form the New Testament gives it to us, in the simple proclamation of the God who loves us and is for us, our Father, the Son who died for us, and the Spirit who enters into us. God for us, God with us, and God in us. And God bless you.